we are colonizing the minds and the bellies and the tastes of these these youths. And most of the time, kids are not happy to eat those foods because that's not culturally appropriate foods. What are indigenous people's traditional foods and why are they so important? What does it mean that they are still being colonized and is it possible to decolonize these foods? What can we do in our daily lives to support indigenous peoples and if we belong to an indigenous people, how can we support our community? Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Slow Food, the podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Slow Food, the podcast that takes you on a journey through the beauty and complexity of good, clean and fair food systems. I'm Valentina Gritti, your host and a Slow Food Youth Network activist. On this podcast we meet change makers around the world who are working towards a more sustainable food system and promote a slow lifestyle. Today I will have a conversation with Luis Francisco Prieto, indigenous peoples and Afro-descendant focal point at Slow Food International. The Slow Food Indigenous Peoples Network is led on a global level by an advisory board of indigenous peoples. On this podcast and in the movement of Slow Food in general, we always prefer to give voice directly to indigenous peoples. In fact, if you go back to our podcast history, you can find many episodes with indigenous youth telling their stories, traditions and sharing their issues. I will link a few of them in the description of this episode. This time, though, I wanted to give voice to one of the persons who has been working hard for many years behind the scenes to support indigenous people communities. Thank you. Thank you, Vale. Uh, greetings, everyone, who's also to the listeners. So today, Francisco will share his experience from the Slow Food Indigenous Peoples Network with a special focus on the topic of food decolonization. <laughs> So you are originally from Argentina, right? I do, I do, yes. And how did it happen that from Argentina you came to live in Bra in Italy and to work for Slow Food International? So I decided um, to, to have an experience abroad and I wanted to, to see the world and I arrived to Turin actually in 2006. And that's where a friend of mine told me about a very interesting event called uh, Salone del Gusto and Terra Madre at that time. And uh, so I went to volunteer and I started um, supporting producers, small producers, uh, with interpretation between Italians and um, Spanish mainly. And that's when I first uh, met the Slow Food Movement and I also met the indigenous people's communities at that time for the first time. And I actually have to say I was very, very ashamed because in Argentina, unfortunately, and this is part of also of our topic of today, uh, colonization led also to a complete uh, change in the structure of education. And um, when we, uh, let's say, non-indigenous peoples, but even indigenous peoples, when we go to school, we are taught that indigenous peoples do not exist anymore in Argentina, um, that there are very, very, very few indigenous peoples and they live very close to the borders with other countries. Um, so I was very amazed when the, the first time I met indigenous peoples from Argentina in Terra Madre event in Italy. And that's when I got in love with, the, with this movement. And then in 2000, uh, 
2015, I was lucky enough to, to join the Slow Food Latin American office. And uh, I attended a very beautiful, um, uh, well, I didn't attend actually, but I supported a big delegation of indigenous peoples from Latin America that attended indigenous Terra Madre event in Shillong in India. And so that's, then there was this vacancy of working for indigenous peoples, uh, for the indigenous peoples network. And I say, absolutely, yes, <laughs> I want to, I want to do that. I want to support, be of help however I can. Yeah, that's, that's when the, my journey, my journey really started. Actually, you said something super interesting that, well, a lot of things that are interesting, but like <laughs> in particular, the thing that you said that when you were at school, you studied that basically there were no longer indigenous peoples in Argentina, but actually it happens also uh, in Europe or in Italy when we study history at school. We study, for example, about the conquests of uh, Latin America from the, co the European colonizers. And what we study is that all the indigenous people's communities um, were destroyed, basically, and there were no survivors. Well, of course, like it was a humanitarian disaster. A lot of people were killed. Entire communities disappeared. But there are still a lot, a lot, a lot of indigenous communities in uh, Latin America and in other parts of the world. And we never hear anything about them at school, which is like the main place of education. So yeah, it's actually very surprising. This is and happening. Disappointing. And um, because also in the 18th and 19th centuries, um, these were countries that um, were created by force. <laughs> well, that's the majority of national states, I would say. Um, but uh, these people needed to create a national identity of being something else. So they had, in my case, they had to create the Argentinian because the Argentinian, what was an Argentinian, you know? Uh, a lot of uh, immigrants come from, came from all over the world and you had also indigenous peoples and you have the colonizers, the settlers. So you have this huge mix and they had to, they had to do um, to create a national identity. And of course, indigenous peoples were not part of that national identity that they wanted to create. And another fact that made me reflect a lot is that, you know, Vale, that Argentina has more indigenous peoples than Brazil, for instance. And that's something that nobody okay. speaks about. And I would have never thought, and it's just by a few, by a few thousand, right? Not, not like a lot. But um, in our understand, understanding of indigenous peoples and where do they live when we are, when we are at school, you imagine uh, these are, are like people who live in the forest alone. And in, so Brazil, Amazonas is what you project indigenous peoples to live in. Uh, but actually indigenous peoples do live everywhere in the world actually. And in, even in cities, not only in the rural areas, nor in the forest as we are taught to imagine actually. Um, and in, in Brazil, Brazil has a little bit less fewer uh, indigenous peoples than, than Argentina. And that's something, uh, I mean, that's a narrative we need to change. And that's, that's why we are here today as well. This brings us already into today's conversation, which is about colonization, decolonization, the rights of indigenous peoples and the right to preserve indigenous people's food. But first of all, to make a bit of clarity, I ask Francisco to share with us a definition of indigenous peoples and also of indigenous food. 
Mm. So the, <laughs> these are very, very complex questions, right? Actually, um, internationally, the indigenous peoples movement didn't want to give a proper definition of indigenous peoples because, as you can imagine, if you have um, a framework, a very specific framework um, where to put indigenous peoples in or out, that could become a tool for member states uh, or for governments or for people being in the opposite side of indigenous peoples to take away indigenous peoples from their rights. So if I decide that indigenous peoples, for example, uh, should be a minority and must, by definition, speak an indigenous people's language, if you're being taken out of your language, if, you, if this community lost their language, they even will, will also lose the rights that indigenous peoples have in a certain state if we just decide that they are not indigenous. So that's why uh, the indigenous peoples movement at the international level strongly advocated against definitions because there is a very strong principle called the principle and the rights of self-determination. So who indigenous peoples are is, um, it should be uh, given by indigenous peoples themselves that should self-recognize as indigenous peoples, I would say. I know I'm not, I'm not answering your question, but that's a very delicate topic. Um, of course, we can say that indigenous peoples are often minorities uh, in a specific area. They often speak a different language than the dominant language in, the, in that country. They have specific and unique and distinctive languages, cultures, spirituality, and also food systems, which are diverse from, from the rest uh, of the dominant area. So, of course, there are some trends that you can take from here and there and try to identify who indigenous peoples are in a certain territory. Um, the, the most important thing is that this is um, a terminology used by a group that recognizes themselves as a group, as a people. So not as myself, I cannot say, hey, I'm indigenous, uh, but we need a group of people that recognize in that, in that definition. And regarding your second question, Vale, about indigenous people's food, well, I would say that um, without uh, taking away the term peoples, like indigenous foods are uh, scientifically, let's say, named like plants, and uh, animal-based foods that are naturally existing in a specific location. Um, but indigenous people's food are those foods that have been protected and uh, stewarded and elaborating and co-evolved together with specific communities uh, around centuries. And that arrive until, until today, I would say, as part of the resistance. Mm. And so these indigenous people's food, um, as you said, is also part of the resistance, but in the sense that indigenous peoples are or have been um, fighting or resisting against colonization. Could you tell us a couple of words about like, what that means specifically for indigenous people's communities and indigenous people's food? Yeah, colonization, it's, uh, let's say, the action of or process of settling, you know, uh, establishing control um, above, let's say, uh, natural resources or labor force or a certain specific area, a certain population. The term of colonization and uh, food colonization specifically, we, we know it's, it's strong, <laughs> uh, 
but it is very efficient, we think, to communicate in certain areas of the world our main message. And we wanted to make visible that two processes are happening today that are not always very, very clear to people, I think, uh, because there is a colonization happening through, through food. Uh, for example, we, we see that many indigenous peoples are seeing their foods and their traditional foods and knowledge with uh, valuable nutritional or medicinal properties, let's say, being appropriated without their consent or even exploited for profit by corporations that do not recognize the community that protected and created that food or that specific uh, technique for centuries, uh, nor they share any, any, any benefit with them. So this is a kind of uh, appropriation, it's cultural appropriation actually, that keeps on happening. And we also see chefs that uh, approach indigenous, you know, chefs now, they, they need sometimes to innovate, they need to position themselves with things new and etc. And sometimes they present themselves as very friends of indigenous peoples. Uh, they approach communities and then they take away their recipes, the ingredients, uh, they discover new foods and they put it out there in the market and they never even mention indigenous communities actually. So it's something that they discovered, they were like explorers and so on. And with big corporations, this is happening more and more in the pharma, in the pharma or parapharma, pharmaceutical uh, industry. Um, so that's one type of colonization, but there is another type less visible more difficult to identify, which is um, the colonization of the food cultures. Media and public policies, they are encouraging the production and consumption of industrial, globalized products instead of the local, traditional ones, you know. And um, as a result, you know, we, we see um, youth as the most affected by this type of cultural colonization shift in um, in the food, uh, in the food cultures, uh, we see as a result uh, food insecurity, standardization of diets, uh, healthy problems that comes from unhealthy diets. Uh, but even more, you know, uh, you lose the flavors, you lose, you lose the knowledge, you lose rituals because to certain foods, there are even more for indigenous peoples. Um, certain foods have meanings that go behind the nutritional aspect. The eating moment, let's say, there are there are certain foods that are using in certain rituals, in certain celebrations. So you are destroying also that when uh, the food traditions are changing so rapidly, so fast. You are also destroying local economies because people that produce certain foods they cannot find uh, a new market out there for for the foods, local market of course, and you are also losing the food identity. Thanks, Francisco. And I'm actually a bit shocked for the <laughs> first uh, uh, process that you described because I've always thought that like these chefs, they were like heroes because they went there like to um, save like indigenous products and make uh, and educate people about them. And I thought also that by using this product, it kind of prevented these products from disappearing. But actually, it's not true. So <laughs> it would be better to leave uh, this uh, food to their indigenous communities and not to um, use them, for example, in famous restaurants or so on. Yeah, it, it depends, actually. I mean, um, again, always the, the answer uh, is to have a clear in mind human rights 
and the principle of self-determination. And Vale, I would like to also add another principle I think is very important for our listeners to, to have in mind when dealing with indigenous peoples, which is the principle of three prior and informed consent, which is a principle that says that nothing happening in indigenous territories should happen without three prior and informed consent of the communities. So um, I think self-determination and the free prior and informed consent are two principles that could also um, help us to be the lens through which we look at cultural appropriation by chefs. So it's not that chefs shouldn't use these products or these ingredients, but we need to make sure that the local community knows what we are talking about, know what the profit of that chef is doing. Um, perhaps, I don't know, that's a very... So the best case scenario would be, from my point of view, which is not the point of view of the community, I, that needs to be clear, um, is for indigenous chefs that uh, take those products and share them as they want, as they think, as, also as their community think is best. But if non-indigenous chefs, let's call it like that, approach a community, I think it's very important for the community to know, to understand where those food will be used, which is the message the chef will vehicle, if it will be only of self-promotion, or perhaps through that food, the chef uh, can be helping a community that is facing uh, a big eviction, for instance, you know, of their lands. The indigenous peoples are often, unfortunately, taking away from their lands in, in many parts of the world. I mean, recognizing, acknowledging the, the community that was behind those products, that supported and protected those products, sharing the economical benefits, sharing any, any kind of sharing. But today, none of those happen. So, um, it, again, it's always a dialogue with a human rights approach, I think, in mind. Mm -hmm. And in the... Um... In the second process, no, the one that it's more regarding, especially the youth, no, that are losing their own culture because they are attracted from the culture of the masses, let's say, or like the westernized culture. I think it's a very, very complicated subject. I would have no idea on how we could reverse this process, no? Also, I don't know how fair it would be to reverse it now so like if it's their own decision it's really like difficult to say uh, you are an indigenous uh, youth so you have to eat only uh, your indigenous people's food no so how can we handle this conversation what i saw since i started working with indigenous peoples um and what many communities told us is that there is a huge sense of uh, shame by being indigenous peoples, mainly mm, through youth. A lot of in, there is a lot of healing that needs to be that needs to happen within indigenous peoples communities, uh, in the, at the individual level, at the community level, and in the relationship with the dominant culture. Um, so this is a very, very delicate aspect, I would say. That's why, as indigenous, Slow Food Indigenous Peoples Network, we started working on the process of identity, of being proud again of belonging to an indigenous peoples group, tribe, or, or people in general. 
when indigenous peoples or when youth that are doubting about their identity somehow, their cultural identity, regain proudness in that identity. Uh, in Sometimes it happens through food. That helps a lot, actually, because you are not ashamed anymore of eating what your mother used to or your grandmother used to cook for you or your father or grandfather. And so at that moment, things start to change. When people become aware of what's happening, things start to change. That's why as Slow Food Indigenous Peoples Network, we put it even in our theory of change, like working with communities for them to be aware of what's happening and mainly for them and the youth to retake pride in their food and their identity. Because food is one of the essential parts that compose indigenous people's uh, identity and culture. And how we do it, how we try to reverse it, we, we try to involve more activists, more indigenous people's activists, create networking, create experiences, share skills, um, arrange training moments, share tools, uh, methodologies to protect and promote uh, their foods uh, and protect them first and promote them internally first within the community. Then we see how, how communities open up, provide communities with the resources to implement the project. And um, another beautiful thing I think we do to try to revert this is to organize moments uh, to share, to meet, to celebrate, uh, to taste delicious food, to realize that these foods are delicious and when compared to other industrial foods, um, they win. And of course, I think it's very important to say, Vale, that um, we try to speak with consumers, we try to speak with the policy makers, we try to speak with every organization for them to become allies of indigenous peoples in their territories. Uh, also individuals, they, they need to become allies. I think it is important that they understand what is happening behind this product to respect and support indigenous peoples and their human rights. Again, I think it's very important to, to say that human rights are at the center of this. And of course, if we think, how can we reverse the process of food colonization? It's very important that chefs, tourists or anyone who is interested in indigenous people's food to have in mind what we've been talking about, to have in mind the principle of self-determination, to have in mind the principle of respect, to avoid cultural appropriation on indigenous people's food or, or, or any type of, of traditional knowledge. Yeah. Thanks, Francisco. And uh, also in the past couple of months, I think, um, the Indigenous Peoples Network of uh, Slow Food has been carrying out a very interesting campaign, which is called Decolonize Your Food. So I guess the campaign also goes around these processes that you have mentioned of like decolonization. Or Can you tell us something more uh, in depth about this campaign? Uh, yes, exactly. Um, this was um, the first campaign, I think, as Indigenous Peoples, Slow Food Indigenous Peoples Network, we, we do. It had two roads, uh, the international campaign and a spe more specific campaign in, in Mexico. Our aim was to share with uh, everyone in the world some of the ongoing efforts that Indigenous peoples are putting in place to protect these foods uh, from extinction, mainly. So we, want to make, we wanted to make sure that people are aware of this, uh, we wanted to put this topic on the table of discussion 
and uh, um, we also wanted uh, to reach out to indigenous, mainly indigenous youth, for them to know that this is happening and uh, to, to learn from other indigenous peoples uh, their experiences and what they are doing on the ground uh, to prevent these foods from, from disappearing. So um, I would say it's more an awareness raising uh, campaign, the ones that we, we undertook as, as, as a global network. Okay, so very interesting. I will uh, add the link also to a couple of articles about the campaign in the podcast description so people can read more about it if they're interested. And um, Francisco, do you know maybe a, a story of an indigenous people's community that managed to decolonize their food? Uh, well, um, I would say that the majority of the if not all the indigenous people's communities that are part now of the, of the slow food network, so which are the, those that I know better, they are all doing they are all doing this. Um, they've been all doing this for centuries, and they keep on doing that even now. The only difference is that we are now connected. But there are youth. Let's say they are getting into the schools again, and instead of uh, proposing foods that come from abroad, so this is part of the colonization that perhaps people are not aware of. In an indigenous territory, the food that is served in the schools' canteens are foods that come from the capital city or from the more industrial city in the country that vehicles transport all this food and is food that in, then is proposed to, to communities in their schools, to the children. So I'm not sure if this is done on purpose or not, but from a very young age, we are colonizing the minds and the bellies and the tastes of these, these youth. And most of the time, kids are not happy to eat those foods because that's not culturally appropriate foods. Or sometimes they like it because they are rich in sugar, rich in salt, rich in fat, which make it very tasty, but then it will destroy uh, your, your health, you know, and it will destroy, of course, your, your, local ident your cultural identity as we, we've been talking until now. Um, or create at least conflict uh, at home. Um, so there are youth that are getting into their schools. They are talking with the headmasters. They are trying to, to provide uh, different, different foods in their schools' canteens or even teach uh, to the kids about the traditional food, food that are disappearing, recipes. Um, a lot of this teaching happens in the local language, in the indigenous language, because there are, sometimes there is not interpretation into the dominant language to speak about those foods. Food is one of the most resistant things in the language world, I would say, because some things cannot be translated, you know? There are other um, communities uh, that are preserving specific uh, specific techniques of processing or transforming foods. There are other communities. Um, now I'm thinking in Kenya, for instance, uh, that um, they are protecting the red Maasai sheep, which uh, become a slow food presidium, uh, which um, is resisting uh, as the dominant sheep that came from South Africa, selecting in the laboratories in South Africa overtook the, um, the, the local sheep with promises of high yields, more fat, more meat. Uh, but unfortunately, that, let's say, laboratory sheep is not um, a strong one, so it cannot support 
uh, the diseases or the local like no illnesses that uh, or the draw it cannot support the draw while the local red mosaic sheep it su it supports long draw periods without with scarcity of water um, so as a result we we have very um, high problems with food insecurity you know because you introduce into a new, a new community you change a, a new breed you change that breed immediately cross breeds with the, the traditional sheep that was adapted to that territory that had adapted for, for decades, if not centuries. Um, and then as soon as the drought comes, the new sheep are less resistant. So the community lose the flock and they have less meat to eat and less um, milk to, to, to drink and process food. So, um, you know, these things are, uh, are, are happening uh, all over the world. And, um, and now the, the flocks are there, the new, the, the older red mosaic sheep is, is there, is resisting. They are keeping it very far away from, from the Doppler, which is the, 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 the breed variety, the race of the, of the sheep. Um, and so they are preserving it pure, let's say, the, the, the breed. So these food resistance are, are, are happening all over all over the world. And Francisco, just to clarify for our listeners, uh, you mentioned that this um, of the red mosaic sheep is a slow food presidium, and presidium means that it's a um, network of producers. In this case, it's a network of uh, the shepherds, the, the breeders of the red mosaic sheep that really are joining forces to protect. Uh, this special um, breed from extinguishing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so thank you so much for these examples. They're very, very interesting. And I have one last question for you, which is a bit tricky, actually. I don't know how much <laughs> you could answer about it. But I wanted to ask you like, if you have any advice of anything we could do in our daily lives, uh, especially like in our case, like of people living in Europe, for example, that are living far away from these realities. Like, is there anything we could do to support indigenous peoples, to support indigenous people's food, to uh, advocate for their rights in our daily lives? Uh, yes, this is a very, very complex question, actually, but um, with, with the time which the slow food movement, we also should uh, be more prepared to, to answer it. I would say the first question is to, to learn, to interrogate yourself where, where you are living and um, acknowledge the land where you are on. Uh, even if you are in Europe, uh, for instance, in the north of Europe, uh, there is an indigenous people. Uh, we say nation, which is the Sami people, uh, which <clears throat> lives in four countries. We need to understand who, who the people uh, who the people are, which uh, issues they, they are having, and how can we support them. So connect with them at the local level, try to understand if they want to be connected or not, but at least to learn from them and support their uh, human rights uh, battles, I would say, all the advocacy on that. Uh, while from the food perspective, I would say we always need to interrogate ourselves uh, where our food comes from. If we can purchase foods that, is, that come directly from indigenous people's communities, even better. If not, at least to, 
to be aware of it. So I would say uh, learn, listen, and participate, support, and advocate indigenous peoples at the, at the local level because they've been suffering for, for, for far too long. And even our minds were colonized, as, as I realized uh, at the beginning in 2006 when I first met indigenous peoples from Argentina, that uh, our governors for, for far too long had even colonized uh, our education without saying us that indigenous peoples uh, were living in the territories that we were now occupying. So yes, let's, let's get informed, ask and respect. Yeah, and decolonize our minds as well. <laughs> Thank you so much, Francisco. It was super interesting, this conversation. And thanks for the work you are carrying out. Thank you. Thanks again, Francisco Prieto, for the information shared with us. I hope you guys find it interesting as much as I do. If you like this episode, I invite you to share it with your network and please send your feedback, comments and questions in our Telegram group. I'll add the link to the podcast description. This is Valentina Gritti and you have listened to Slow Food, the podcast. Ciao!